الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف المرسلين سيدنا ونبينا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين. What you are looking at is the death statistics in South Africa for the year 2011. In September they just released the new statistics for 2012, so they are still two years behind. But uh, since this was in a graph, I prefer to use this one. What is of interest is that 90%, oh sorry, 9%, 45% of deaths in South Africa are due to unnatural causes. Are due to unnatural causes. So 40, did I say 45%? It's 9%, but it's 45,000 people in the year 2011 that died due to unnatural causes. And Allah knows best. So the cause is entitled, The Last Breath, Preparing for the Inevitable. Preparing for the Inevitable. The aim and intent, inshallah, is to discuss death, how death occurs, um, the etiquettes of death, the etiquettes of the dead person after his demise, the washing of the deceased, the shrouding of the deceased, salah upon the deceased, how to speak to the bereaved family and the like, and also the laws relating to inheritance from the deceased and all other related issues such as visiting the graveyard, etc. So the course is intended to be a bumper course, inshallah. There's a lot of things that we will be able to learn that we, uh, I think, uh, might not have known before this. And Allah knows best. So tonight's lesson is called Death and Beyond, and it deals with the etiquettes of dying, etc. First and foremost, with regards to remembrance of death, with regards to remembrance of death, in your notes there's an ayah in the Quran where the Prophet of Allah is told, verily you will die, wa mayyitun, and surely they will die as well. So not even the Prophet Muhammad, who is Khairul Bariya, the best of creation, would live forever. And if he doesn't have the opportunity to live forever, then nobody else will live forever. One difference between the death of a normal mortal and the death of a Nabi or a Rasul is that a normal mortal's permission is not asked. But a Nabi or a Rasul, his permission is asked. He is asked, do you want to die today? Do you want to die today? And then he has the option to say, no, I don't want to die today. Right? But with normal people, you are not granted that option. You must have read in the famous story of Nabi Musa, that death approached him from the rear and then he basically smacked death. And then death went back to Allah and complained, it appears Nabi Musa is not ready. So Allah sent death back and he asked Nabi Musa, so when do you want to die? And then Allah gave him the license that you can put your hand on the side of a cow. And whatever amount of hairs are beneath the cow, I give you those years extra. When he did that, he had to look at the hairs below, so it looked like 90 odd years, he said, so little. So if that's the case, let's die now. You understand? If all I've got left is another 90 years, then it's not worth staying around. And most of us won't live as long even. <laughs> the mean age for death in South Africa is 51 years. 51 years. The mean age for death in South Africa is 51 years. So this is Sula Alu Imran, verse 185. Allah says, Every soul shall taste death. Why do we not eat of the meal that is death? Because the moment you die to the dunya, you are born in the akhirah. So you have not fully eaten of the meal that is death. 
You merely tasted it. To look at it from a different angle, some ulama say, it is when the eternal soul tastes the death of its mortal body. The physical body. Like I am not this body. This is my car. I am the one that's driving this car. You understand? And one day this car will die. But since my soul is intertwined with every part of the nervous system, with every part of every system that makes this physical body, that connection needs to be torn. So my soul will taste the death of this body one day. And then the soul will move on to the next world. As for thinking of the idea of living forever, as for thinking of the idea that I was a good Muslim, so why wasn't I allowed to live forever? So Allah answers it in the next one and Allah says, and you will only receive your recompense in full on the day of Qiyamah. The dunya is not for you to be rewarded. The akhirah is for you to be rewarded. The dunya is not for you to be punished. The akhirah is for you to be punished. So all of that will happen from the day of Qiyamah and forward. Prior to that in your grave, you will get a taste of the delights that lie ahead. And you will get a taste of the torments that lie ahead if you are one of those people. So whosoever is distanced from your fire and allowed entry into paradise has indeed attained to success. You will have passed the test that is the dunya if you are allowed to enter Jannah and you are kept away from Jahannam. If however you are the opposite, you are distanced from Jannah and you are forced to enter Yaw, then surely you are those that are unsuccessful. And I've mentioned this before, what I wanted to, 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 to be a reminder. At this moment in time in Jannah, there's a house with your name on. And at this moment in time in Jahannam, there's a house with your name on. And whenever you commit a sin, they build on the house in Jahannam. And whenever you do a good deed, an act of ta'a or ibadah, act of obedience or worship, they extend to your house in Jannah. And one day, Whichever way you go, whether you go to Jannah or Jahannam, you will be allowed to go see your opposite house. So if I'm going to Jannah, I will be allowed to go to Jahannam just to look at the house that could have been mine. And then after seeing that house in the torments that lie in it, I will be so happy, I won't need to go to Jannah. It will be such a delight that I'm not going there, that I won't need to go to Jannah. But by the grace of Allah, I will be allowed to go to Jannah also, inshallah. And the other way around, if I'm destined to go to Jahannam, and here I'm not speaking of the Muslim, I speak of the Kafir, because the sinful Muslim goes to Jahannam, but only temporarily, though that may be a few thousand years or a few million years, that will also be only temporarily, and then eventually he will go to Jannah. But as for the Kafir, he goes to Jahannam, he's shown a house that could have been his in Jannah. And after realizing what he has lost, paradise lost, after realizing what he has lost, he will suffer such regret and sorrow that will be enough for him. But still, he will be taken to hell. And Allah knows best. One of the ayat that indicate that we will all be allowed to visit hell is the ayah in the Quran where Allah says, وَمَا مِنْكُمْ إِلَّا وَارِدُهَا There is none amongst you except that they will make wurud they will be allowed to arrive at that location and Allah knows best. And in the end, as for the dunya, and the worldly life is no more than a chattel of deception. It is a chattel, a thing that can be used to your benefit and to your harm, but it is deceiving you, you're thinking it is real, but it is like a mirage. And only when it comes to an end, 
Will it make sense to you? And there's something I always think about. Inshallah, may be so that Allah grants us all Jannah and Allah grants us all Jannah directly. But I'm thinking of, if I'm so lucky, Inshallah, that one day I'm in Jannah, I'm probably going to wake up after a nice afternoon nap, a qilula, a siesta, and then I'm going to turn to my wife and I'm going to say, you know, that 65 years I was in dunya, was that for real? Or was that one of these afternoon siestas? Because that's going to be how dunya is going to feel like. Jannah is forever. So some 15,000 years, 150,000 years, a million years into the future, when I think back to dunya, what will I remember? There'll be hardly anything worth remembering because 65 years compared to forever is like a flesh in the pan. It is not even worth thinking about. And this is why I, I, I mentioned the story of Nabi Musa. What's an extra 90 years? To somebody that's lived a few hundred years. He's thinking, you're wasting my time by offering me a 90 years. You understand? So in a like manner, the 65 years, when we come to see what Akhirah is, the 65 years will be a joke. And that is why when Allah refers in the, to, 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 to the Akhirah in the Quran, Allah says, hayawan, The Akhirah, it is the true life. And Allah uses the term that is normally used for an animal, Allah calls it hayawan, animal. It is an animate thing. It is a truly loving thing, the akhirah. And the akhirah compared to the dunya, it is, it is nothing. Even if we look at the word dunya, and we look at it grammatically, where does it come from? We find that the word dunya comes from two potential verbs. There's a verb that says, danayad nu. So dunya is the world that is close to you, because danayad nu means to be close, close to my five senses. My five senses are able to pick it up. And there's another world that my five senses can't pick up. But somehow that world is more real than this. The other potential meaning of dunya, from the verb dania, yadana, dana'a, to be of low value, to be base and useless. And ulama say that refers to the dunya also. Because the dunya compared to the akhirah is not worth anything. And Allah knows best. In the one description, just to give you an idea, Allah says in a hadith Qudsi that everything that Allah has given to man from the beginning of, of the creation of man till the end of man, if you compare it to what Allah has with him, it is as if you have taken a needle and placed it into the yam, into the oceans. And when you draw it from the ocean, then what do you see at the end of the needle? A small little drop of water. That small little drop of water is everything that Allah has given man from the beginning of man till the end of man compared to what Allah has. In fact, the example is a deficient example. Because the example refers to a seed that is limited, while Allah's gifts are unlimited. There is no end to it. It is merely an example. And we cannot fully understand the grandeur and the greatness that is Allah. The Prophet of Allah, he advises us as Muslims, ponder frequently in the destroyer of all worldly pleasures. أَكْثِرُوا مِنْ ذِكْرِ هَذِي مِنْ لَذَّاتِ يَعْنِي meaning thereby الموت, death Some people say Mullah, if we're always thinking about dying then that is going to make us sober people somber and sober we'll never be able to laugh or smile or enjoy the dunya so that is not the intent the intent rather is for the Muslim to be reminded that the dunya is not your true abode the intent is for the Muslim to be reminded that the Akhirah is your true abode. 
And you should be focusing on your akhirah. And your departure for your akhirah is imminent. And your death is that departure. So nobody is saying, don't take off the dunya that which is good. The Prophet ﷺ constantly made the dua. And I've said it numerous times. The Prophet ﷺ made hajj around the Kaaba. What is the one dua that we know that is sahih, authentic that he made? Actually, I'm going in the wrong direction. From the Rukan Yamani until the, the, the Rukan of the Hajar Aswad. What is the dua you made? Rabbana atina fi dunya hasana wa fi akhirati hasana wa qina adab al-nar. Oh, our Lord grant us good in this world and in the next and protect us from the yellow fire. If during Hajj, in which time I'm not focused on good clothes, I'm not focused on good smell and perfume and fragrance. I'm focused only on my Allah. During Hajj, if I'm calling unto Allah, Allah give me of the dunya. Then it means that a Muslim is entitled to have good in the dunya. At all times. And good in the year after. So the Muslim does not ask for good only in the year after. He asks for good in the dunya as well. But he understands that the year after is the true life. The year after is the thing that one should be really focused upon. And Allah knows best. The Prophet ﷺ, he looks upon the worldly life as an opportunity. And we understand this in the hadith that comes in Musadrak Hakim. The Prophet says, seize five opportunities before five calamities befall you. Your life before your death. Your health before your sickness. Your free time before you are occupied. Your youth before your old age. And your prosperity before your poverty. So, there are five opportunities, there are five calamities. Inevitably, the five calamities come your way. If you make good use of the five opportunities, the five calamities will not be as large as it could be. It will be highly reduced. And Allah knows best. <coughs> Elsewhere, we find the Prophet telling the Sahaba, especially Abdullah ibn Umar, be in the dunya as if you are merely a stranger or a traveler. Don't take the dunya as your homeland. The dunya is a place you don't belong and you are merely moving through the dunya to the actual destination that is the akhirah. For this reason, the Sahabi Abdullah ibn Umar was the one the Prophet told us. He used to constantly say to his companions, in the evening don't wait for the morning, and in the morning don't wait for the evening. What is he speaking about? He's speaking about procrastination, the tendency, the human tendency to delay. And he's telling you that if you've got good to do, then do it immediately. Don't wait for tomorrow to do good. And if tomorrow comes, don't tell yourself, I'm going to do it tonight. Somehow when it comes to the unimportant, we hasten. But when it comes to the important, we tell ourselves, I'll do that later. I'll do that later. There's a top author on the self you have seen by the name of Brian Tracy. So he has a new book out. The book is called Swallowing the Frog. And when he opens the book on page one, he says, you should swallow your biggest frog first. So what is he speaking about? He says, every day of your life, you must set out what you're going to do. And the most difficult thing, you should do that first. And then the next most difficult thing. And the difficult things, he calls them frogs. You understand? So he says, if you you, you swallow your biggest frog first, then everything after that will be downhill. But what if you use your time of energy for the things you like? And then what happens when you need to do the difficult things? Now you don't have energy. So that means at the end of the day it is not going to be done. So that's why the Prophet ﷺ says in one hadith, 
Halakal musawifun. The people who say soon, they will fall into destruction. There is no soon. There's only the now. There is no soon. There's only the now. The now is what you can guarantee. The soon, you cannot guarantee it. So if there's something good that needs to be done, do it now. And then, in the like manner as how the Prophet had said, and take of your health for your sickness, and of your life for your death. And Allah knows best. Now, what should happen if I'm afflicted with sickness? And the sickness has enormous pain, and it is causing me enormous misery. Should I call unto Allah? Oh Allah, take me away, Allah. I can't take the pain anymore. It can't be affected to Allah. Let me do what Allah wants me to do. So, what is recommended by the Prophet, as you will find in this hadith, is that you must make sabr, is that you must make sabr, be patient, and bear the difficulty. And if you really have to wish for death, then don't directly wish for death. Call unto Allah and say unto Allah, and we will give you the hadith just now for that. Oh Allah, if it is better for me to love, then keep me alive, O Allah. But if it is better for me to die, then you take me away, O Allah. But don't ask Allah directly, O Allah cause me to die. Why? Again, your best potential akhirah is based upon a longer life. The Prophet of Allah was asked by a sahabi, Man khayrun nas? Who is the best of people? Then the Prophet answered, Man ta'ala umaruhu wa hasuna amaluhu. He who loves a long life and does good deeds. So if what I'm looking at is a man that does a lot of good deeds, then it is to his benefit to live longer, isn't it? Because the longer he lives, the more good deeds he does, the better jannah he gets, more pleased Allah is with him, etc., etc. So sometimes even when we are in sickness, because we are exhibiting that sabr, that patience that is beloved to Allah, we are actually earning better jannah, better jannah, better jannah, you understand our chances of going to Jahannam is being reduced, 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 reduced. Frequently the chosen people, the people Allah really loves, unfortunately they also did commit some sins. So just prior to their death, Allah caused a sickness to afflict them. And then the sickness burns away all their sins. So that one day inshallah, when they eventually die, they die and they meet the Allah sinless. So Allah wants to meet them as honored people, as sinless people inshallah so let us not complain over, over those type of things and if we have to complain then complain to Allah do not complain to creation right so Ibn Abbas gives us an example he says a lady came to the Prophet complaining of epileptic fits so she collapses and then there's shaking palpitations of the body foaming at the mouth perhaps and because she can't control the body Sometimes a, a dress opens and parts of her, of her body is opened and she exposes herself. So she came to the Prophet Islam to ask the Prophet, can you make dua that Allah can relieve me from the sickness and so that my aura is not uncovered, etc., etc. The Prophet, however, didn't just say, yes, I'll make dua. He responded by saying the following. If you choose to, you can go the way of patience, sabr. And then I guarantee Jannah for you. Otherwise, if you choose to, I can make dua and Allah will cure you. But then Jannah is a separate journey. You're going to have to earn it elsewhere. So this is a sahabia, a female sahabi. She knows the value of the offer of Jannah. So obviously what did she say? She said, I will be patient inshallah. This hadith comes in Bukhari. 
In another version, version of this hadith, it comes in other books. She says, I will be patient insha'Allah, but ask Allah that when I get the fits, my aura must not be uncovered. So the Prophet of Islam lifted his hands and he made dua for that. Oh Allah, when she falls, just don't let her aura be uncovered. Because some foolish man or woman might think, yeah, this is a sign that he's a false prophet. He knew that if he makes dua, it's not going to be accepted because there is no God and he is not a prophet. But so Allah left something in the hadith to show now that he is a true prophet and there is really an Allah. Because prior to that, whenever she fell, she was exposed. Now he made the dua, she still fell. But she was earning a jannah via that. She had chosen it to be so. But now whenever she fell, never was her aura exposed. And there would be no way for her to, to cover her aura. She's, she's an epileptic. She suffers the fits. You understand? So it must be some external force that is assisting her. And clearly after that dua, it must be that the external force was brought about by that dua. And Allah knows best. In another hadith, the Prophet of Allah says, Allah has sent down both the sickness and the cure. Both comes down from Allah. Allah is its creator. And as such, every sickness has its cure. Therefore, use medication, but avoid that which is prohibited. From this hadith and other hadith, like this ulama have understood that it is sunnah to use medication. It is not considered compulsory, but it is considered sunnah to medicate yourself. So if you use the medication of your time by the respected medical practitioners of your time, people we can depend upon qualified individuals, then surely you will get reward for that if the intention is correct. So that I can live longer, so that I can do good deeds to please Allah, etc. I've already mentioned to you that generally makruh to desire death, but you are allowed to make the following dua, the dua comes in Bukhari and Muslim, Allahumma ahini ma kanatil hayatu khayran li, wa tawafani ila kanatil wafatu khayran li, Allah keep me alive as long as life is better for me, and cause me to pass away when death is better for me. Allah knows best. So those are the general laws of death and sickness, etc. I've not done the etiquettes of visiting the sick, because otherwise this lesson will be too long. The current slides that I have for tonight is already 85 slides. And there are five divisions. We see how far we get, inshallah. Whatever we don't complete, believe for next week. Etiquettes of the muhtadar. What is a muhtadar? A muhtadar is an individual, malakul maut has appeared. And he's starting with you. So that means you have entered into the throes of death. A muhtadar is the individual that is on the verge of death. So what are the etiquettes of the muhtadar? First and foremost, what are the signs of death? According to Islamic scholars. Now medical doctors have their own way of looking at it. We're just mentioning some of the signs that the ulama have picked up in their own experiences. So number one, they say when an individual passes away, then his eyes have a fixed stare. Number two, the nose, the average nose is normally in the middle, but when an individual dies, then they say the nose starts to lean slightly in, the, in one direction, either to the right or to the left. Obviously, if the guy's nose is crooked already like mine, that's not going to be a sign of anything. <laughs> Allah knows best. Right? So speaking of the average nose. Then the lower jawbone becomes slack, and it starts hanging. It becomes slack, and it starts hanging. There's a stopping or cessation of the heartbeat as well. The body grows colder. 
And the calf of the one leg intertwines with that of the other. The calf of the one leg intertwines with that of the other. Sometimes there's a bending of the, of the, of the one foot in the direction of the other foot and uh, the two legs can link up. And Allah knows best. Right? So those are some of the signs of death that somebody has passed away already. Right. So the family and the relatives of anyone present at the time, at that time are recommended to do the following for the one so afflicted. This is now prior to them passing away. You should be made to lie on his right hand side facing the Qibla. If this is not possible, if this is not possible, if it is not possible to, to have him lie on his right hand side facing the Qibla, you will have him lie on his left hand side facing the Qibla. If it is not possible to have him lie on his left side facing the Qibla, you will have him lie with his feet towards the Qibla. And then you will put an extra cushion under his head so that his head can come up slightly and his face then be towards the Qibla. So the face will be towards the Qibla and the soles of the feet. The face and the soles of the feet. And the reason for this is that generally... Muslims when they make ibadah, they face the Qibla, and they face the Qibla when they are involved in certain important activities. Then also it is sunnah prior to the demise of the deceased to perform talqeen, and it is basically to instruct him to recite, to recite the shahada, which is la ilaha illallah, there is no being worthy of worship but Allah. Some ulama say, you mustn't say to him directly, say la ilaha illallah. You must just mention the la ilaha illallah. But you must mention it in a manner that is suggestive. So instead of saying, Say la ilaha illallah, you just do this. La ilaha illallah. La ilaha illallah. La ilaha illallah. Other ulama say, there are authentic hadith in which the Prophet actually said to somebody that was on the verge of dying, Say la ilaha illallah. Say la ilaha illallah. So it is not considered makruh reprehensible to say so, though it might be more gentle. To just say, La ilaha illallah, La ilaha illallah. And you shouldn't insist that the individual say it. If the individual says it, and after that they say nothing, you will not make talqeen again. If however they speak about dunya matters, then you will remind them to make talqeen again. The idea here is that the last thing that they must say before they die is, La ilaha illallah. There is no being worthy of worship, but Allah. In Sahih Muslim, the Prophet ﷺ is reported to have said, make talqeen to your deceased by saying, La ilaha illallah. Talqeen means tell them to say. Also the Prophet ﷺ had said, we whose final statement is La ilaha illallah will surely enter Jannah. Will surely enter Jannah. It is also desirable that Surah Yasin is recited in the presence of the one that is about to die, as it contains the mention of the conditions of the year after and the resurrection from the grave. They have a hadith actually on this that some ulama use. And the hadith is, Iqra'u Yasin, ala mawtakum, recite surat Yasin to your dead. The direct wording of the hadith says, you're dead. But most ulama understand it to mean, the people before they die. The people before they die. So the hadith is, recite surat Yasin to those who are as good as dead. That is what they understand from the hadith. However, they also use the hadith, to indicate that it is good to recite Surah Yasin after the individual had passed away. And Allah knows best. It is also recommended for every Muslim, but emphasized for the muhtadar, the one about to die, to maintain a good opinion of Allah. 
Now, the Prophet ﷺ visited the Sahabi. And then he asked the Sahabi, How are you today? Then he said, I find myself between two matters. One is, I'm hoping for the mercy of Allah, and I'm fearing the punishment of Allah. And then the Prophet ﷺ basically told him that it is a sign that you are a true believer when you have this quality. That hope you are hoping in the mercy of Allah, and you are fearing the punishment of Allah. Ulama discuss it further. Then they say, it comes in a hadith, and we're going to have a look at that hadith just now, that prior to demise, you need to have a good opinion of Allah. So they understand the following, they say. When you are a young man or a young woman, and your potential to commit sin is very great, then the quality of fearing Allah should be greater. And the quality of hoping in His mercy should be less. Normally youngsters, they don't think much of the, fear of, the, of the fear of Allah. They think more of Allah's mercy. As a right man, Allah's self-esteem. Then what happens to that individual on the deathbed? Now they've got a mountain of sin. Now they sit with this enormous worry. And they leave this world with this enormous worry. So ulama say it should actually be the other way around. When you are young, you should be fearful. And not so focused on the mercy of Allah. You must focus on that also. And as you grow older, you should be focused now more on the mercy of Allah and less on fearing Allah. So that on the day that you are dying, you should actually be telling yourself, Inshallah, Allah is taking me to Jannah. Inshallah, Inshallah, I made it Inshallah. Uh, I, I lived a fairly good life. I know I made a lot of sins, but I made Tawbah also Inshallah. And Allah is Ghafoor Rahim, Allah is Arhamur Rahimin. So now you old, there's hardly any potential for sin now in the last moments. You understand? So that curbing the sin with fear is not really required. Now the problem is that you might die not having a good opinion of Allah. So now you must focus on that, inshallah. So it comes in Sahih Muslim that the Prophet ﷺ says, none of you should die except while maintaining a good opinion of Allah. So at that time it is better to focus on Allah's mercy than to focus on His anger and Allah knows best. So what this means is that he should be desirous of Allah for giving his sins and being pleased with him. He should not give in to the idea that his sins are too many or enormous for the mercy of Allah. He should remind himself that Allah's mercy is infinite and that if Allah so desires, he forgives sins that is equal to the foam on the ocean. But as I said, that tends to be the way of the pious. The pious, when they are able to commit sins, are fearful of Allah. And when they hardly have the ability to commit sins, they are hopeful of the mercy of Allah. While the sinful, when they are able to commit sins, forget the fear of Allah. And now when they are about to meet Allah, they are telling themselves, Whoa, So now you leave the dunya with that idea. And then Allah gives you what you thought of Him. And Allah knows best. If you are present, like you are a family relative, and your father, your mother, your dear individual is passing away and you notice that they are becoming depressed and they are losing hope in Allah's mercy, then you must remind them of related Quranic verses where Allah speaks of His mercy and a hadith where He speaks of how infinite His mercy is and thereby you will encourage them to regain hope and Allah knows best. Some people have the opinion in Cape Town that if I'm sick, I have a right to be rude. I have a right to shout at you etc., etc. But these things are contrary to the teachings of Allah. 
Yes, we do understand. I, the relative of the sick, the relative of the terminally ill, should be a little bit more lenient with them. If they, due to excessive pain, are impatient, are demanding, are a little bit rude. So I should, I should take cognizance of the condition that they are in. But they themselves must not give themselves permission to be rude. They must tell themselves whether I'm sick or not sick. I'm a Muslim and I'm supposed to behave in an honorable manner. So when you're sick, maintain your good behavior as much as, as possible. Avoid arguments with your relatives and involvement in worldly matters. Focus on meeting Allah by ensuring that the end of your life ends with the best of deeds. Seek the pardon of your spouse, your children, your relatives, your neighbors, your friends. Like it's like going on Hajj. People go on Hajj, they ask everybody maaf. They die, they ask nobody maaf. What is a greater journey, Hajj or death? Obviously, the death is a greater journey. So if you're going to ask maaf when you go for Hajj, there's a greater Lord that you must ask maaf when you die, because it's a final opportunity now. So it is best, in fact, to seek pardon from anyone and everyone with whom one has some connection or the other, or had some dealings or the other. Ask them whatever it is that I did, I don't even know. Just forgive me, inshallah. Just forgive me. Also occupy yourself with dhikr and the recital of Quran. Special care should be taken even if you are terminally ill. If you are able to, then make salah. There's always some way or the other for you to make salah. Also, even though you're sick, don't allow yourself to be soiled with najasa. And then you are just happy to be soiled with najasa. You are still a Muslim. The way of a Muslim is tahara. So even if you are dying, if you are able to, then seek to die in a state that is clean. If there's somebody that can assist you, then ask them, assist me. I, I sold myself. I need to be clean when I die. You understand? So Allah knows best. Don't tell yourself, because Salah is always there for the Muslim. Same with tahara. Tahara is always there. So do whatever you can, even as you are dying. If able, he should advise his family to make sabr after his demise. So if you're able to speak to them, then you must speak to them and tell them. It doesn't look like his daddy is going to love for more than a day or so. So if daddy passes away, I want you to make sabr. Yes, we can't stop you from crying. It's natural and normal to cry. But please don't press out the tears. And don't go crazy ripping your, your shirts and making tears in your face. We are not the people of Jailiyah. We are Muslims. Yes, we cry because we are humans and we will feel pain. But don't do the practices of prior to Islam. And tell them they must observe proper teachings of Islam during the funeral preparation. Tell them to avoid excessive expressions of sorrow and other innovations that is common amongst the lay people. Tell them to avoid all of those things. Also, it is, it is, it is ideal that you care personally for your sick. Instead of getting a, a maid or a nurse or somebody, if you are able to, it is best that you personally care for your sick. If there is a requirement of specialized care, like you need a specialized nurse, then you and the nurse look after your sick, your sick mother, your sick father, your sick brother, your sick husband, your sick wife, etc. Try to assist uh, the nurse. You, the relative, will always have a more loving touch, a more caring touch. Also, 
The individual that is about to die, the individual that is terminally sick, they will appreciate what you do more than what anybody else does. And Allah knows best. Also, you should start making dua for the relative that Allah must ease his suffering or her suffering. Allah must cleanse him or her of their sins. And Allah must accept them into, their, into his jannah. Right, now this is something interesting. I didn't add it in your notes. But I added it because it, it will come further on in tonight's lesson, inshallah. Most people don't realize, but according to Islamic law, you only have a say on a third of your entire estate. A third of what you own, you have a say over what happens to it. As for two thirds, you have no say. So the two thirds of what you leave behind. So let's say I leave behind a hundred rand. So that means two thirds of it, which is sixty-six rand. Okay, sixty-six comma six 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 six. But anyway, sixty-six rand. I have no say. Sorry, no say. I have no say. The Quran and the related hadith says who it must be given to. So that is known as miraf, Islamic inheritance. Right? Normally, who that money goes to is your father, your mother, your son, your daughter, and your spouse, whether male or female. There are six people that always inherit, and there's only, always only five of them. Because it's husband and wife, and you're always one of them. So you the wife, then somebody else is the husband. And then you the husband, and somebody else is the wife. So there'll always only be five of them maximum. And they are the people that will normally inherit from you. So the 66% of your inheritance will go to them in accordance with shares that Allah has pre-stipulated in the Quran and in Hadith. What the shares are, we will explain in one of the coming lessons. As for a third of your entire estate, a 33%, you have the right to do with it whatever you like. On condition, you don't give it to anybody that's already your heir. So two-thirds of it will go to stipulated heirs. The Quran and Hadith says who they are. I've already mentioned them. Your father, your mother, your son, your daughter, your husband or your wife. If some of them are absent, then other people will start inheriting. Like your brother and your sister. And then you've got different types of brothers depending how interesting your family was. Full brothers, full sisters. Then our brothers on the father's side, our brothers on the mother's side. <laughs> and so forth and so forth. You understand? And even grandfathers can inherit and grandmothers can inherit if some of those six people aren't there. But in the average estate, those six people, normally five, will inherit. With the third, you can give it to anybody you like. As long as you don't give it to anybody that's getting something in the two-thirds. And Allah knows best. Like a common question. Uh, Maulana... Toe ek jong gewisse, toe was ek a bekie stout. Nou het ek a wala duzina. Gaan hy in herat van my? Nou. Da wala duzina cannot in herat from a male. Wala duzina does however in herat from his or her mother. Because she is definitely the mother. While there is doubt as to whether he is the father. But ek sal nog al leksel vorm iets te losmaal en a. Ja, that's why Allah put the third. You understand? For me en sy zom. But they lost, uh, they, it's a loss. <laughs> Understand? And Allah knows best. So a third of your estate, you can give it to anyone you like. Your waladu zina, 
the masjid, I, I don't mean Yugata Walad is in I just mean like in the case now. You understand? The masjid, uh, somebody that's been good to you, anybody you want to give the third, you can give it to. However, the Prophet ﷺ considered a third of your estate to give away, not to your heirs, to be a lot. Thus comes in a hadith where a sahabi told the Prophet that if I pass away, then I will only be leaving a daughter. Then I will only be leaving a daughter. So I don't want her to inherit everything. Can I give my entire estate away? Then the Prophet said no. Then he said, can I give half away? The Prophet said no. Then he said, can I give a third away? The Prophet said, yes, you can give a third away, but a third is a lot. It is better for you to leave your heirs rich and independent than for you to leave them poor, having to beg the people with palms outstretched. So though you have the right to give away a third, the Prophet says, it's best that you, you don't give up to a third away. Right? It's best that it goes to the heirs. As I already mentioned in Quran and Hadith. Right? So when I speak of a third, so that is called in Arabic a wasiyah, a bequest. And technically that's your will. All of the Hadith that speak about, it's a good thing to have a will. That is actually what is meant by it. It is meant that if you want to give up to a third away, you need to say who is, who is going to get it. As for, if you don't make a will, it will automatically go to those six heirs. Right? If you do make a will, you're only saying who's getting the third. Your will can, for Barakah's sake, state, and by the way, my father, his name is so-and-so, and my mother's name is so-and-so, and my son, these are my sons. You understand? But it's not necessary. All that is necessary is that you must say that a body like MJC must determine what is a Sharia compliant distribution for me at the time of my demise. And Allah knows best. So then they will look at the related ayat and they will say how much your father gets and your mother gets and your daughter gets and your sister gets, etc., etc. Do you want to click quickly here the inheritances? If you have one daughter only, she gets half. If you have two or more daughters, they get two-thirds of the estate. If there's mixed daughters and boys, they share double and single. Every boy gets double, every daughter gets single. If there's only one son left, he inherits the entire estate. Right. If you have only a mother and a father, no children, the mother gets a third, the father gets what remains. If you have children, the mother gets a sixth, the father gets a sixth. If you have no children but you've got brothers, the mother gets a six, the father gets the remainder. How much does the husband get? If you've got no children, the husband gets a half. If you have children, the husband gets a quarter. If you have no children, the wife gets a quarter, which is the maximum a wife can ever inherit, regardless of circumstance. And if you have children, a wife will get an ace. And if you've got more than one wife, then they must share it. Whether the quarter or the eighth. <laughs> Something to think about. And Allah knows best. All of those are fixed shares. You cannot change them. And they are mentioned in the Quran. The related verses will be done in a future lesson. Inshallah. We'll continue with this lesson after Salah. Right, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim to continue. Whatever I've mentioned of inheritance and shares, etc., 
I'll just briefly mention there, there's an independent night for inheritance uh, in which we will discuss all of those things, what its evidence is, and then you can ask as many questions as you like regarding all of that. Regarding what we are doing tonight, you're obviously free to ask any questions, send it to the front, we'll answer it at the end. I only wanted to clarify what point six means. When we say that you have the right to make a will, we mean with regards to a third of your estate. You have a right to say who will inherit up to a third of your estate. The Prophet of Allah regarding this stated, it is not appropriate for a believing soul who desires to make a bequest to spend two nights without this bequest being kept written by him. Without this bequest being kept written by him. It is also advised that two male witnesses are taken when the bequests are written or it is handed over to them so that they, after the demise of the deceased, can basically indicate to the ears that yes, we were present when he said so. I need you to understand that when the executor comes to execute the will and then suddenly you say, well, daddy left me the car. If you don't have two male witnesses or any documentation for that, it will not be accepted by the executor of the estate. And Allah knows best. More of that in a future lesson, inshallah. Imam Nawi rahimahullah says, the Muslims have attained consensus that is they are in agreement that a bequest is encouraged. They does differ as to the degree, is it compulsory or not? So Imam, Imam Nawi says, our school, the Shafi school, and that of the majority of scholars, is that it is recommended but yet not compulsory. If however you have a debt, you owe somebody money, or anything similar, such as you have something that is placed in trust, then you must write a will in which you state that this is not my property and it must be returned to that particular individual. And I owe, owe such and such a person such and such an amount. And Allah knows best. If you have no debts, you owe nobody anything, you, haven't any, you don't have any amanas or wadi'as as it is called by you, then you don't need to make a will. You don't technically need to make a will. If a Muslim dies, it is understood that his uh, estate must be divided in accordance with the teachings of Islam. It is however highly recommended, especially in a state such as South Africa, a non-Muslim state, that there is a will. And that you state in the will that you want your estate to be divided according to the laws of Sharia. And that you appoint a suitable executor to do so, and you say that an organization such as MJC have power of attorney and they have power of interpretation when any doubt might arise as to what was intended by me, the testator, and the deceased. And Allah knows best. <clears throat> Etiquette following death. After a person has died, it is desirable that you close the eyes of the deceased. Because if you leave his eyes staring like that, that death stay then it is something that is very unpleasant for visitors to see and it becomes very unsightly. And also it is the sunnah of the Prophet Umm Salama reports that when her husband Abu Salama passed away, the Prophet of Allah came and noticing that Abu Salama's eyes had this fixed there, he closed the eyes and then he said, why the eyes stay? He said, the sight follows the soul as it is taken. So as Malikul Maut or his, his, his team pulls the soul, then the eyes actually look towards the soul as it is being pulled away. So when the final part of the soul is pulled, then the eye stays there, looking, you understand, and Allah knows best. 
So this is a long hadith. The rest of the hadith will come later uh, in this lesson. And Allah knows best. Some ulama say it is good at the time of closing the eyes to say the following. Bismillahi wa ala millati rasulillah. In the name of Allah. And on the custom of the messenger of Allah. <coughs> it is also recommended that you tie a broad band of material around the jawbone and the head to keep the mouth closed. Again, if relatives come perhaps to kiss the deceased or ziyara him as they like to call it in Cape Town, <coughs> it will be very unsightly if his mouth is standing open and agape. And Allah knows best. It is also desirable prior to ghusl to loosen the limbs of the deceased to facilitate funeral preparations. When a person has died and after a while there's something that sets in, it's called rigor mortis. And rigor mortis is when the limbs start pulling stuff. So when they wash the deceased, it's very difficult to wash him. So one of the sunnahs of the Muslims is that they loosen the limbs beforehand. They, they keep the limbs moving. So if you're taking the dead man's forearm, for example, then you will press it like that until it reaches the shoulder. So that will be considered loosening of the elbow. You understand? You can do the same thing with the wrist. You can do the similar things with the fingers. With the lower leg, you will raise the lower leg until the rear of the lower leg touches the thigh. So that will be its movement in the opposite direction now, like a leg, right? And then the thigh area will be actually lifted up till against the chest. And Allah knows best. And that will be considered loosening of the limbs. That will be considered loosening of the limbs. Right? So all of that is so that when the individual is washed, then it is easy to wash the individual. If for some reason or other the individual went to the morgue and the individual came out of the freezers, then those that wash him have endless problems. It's very difficult to move the body in the first place, to wash. And then also because the individual now has become a block of ice. If you wipe, as you wipe, the new water comes out of his skin. So you wiping and new water is coming on. So it's a constant battle. You cannot keep the individual dry. So Muslims for various reasons, including Husserl and all of that, we have a dislike for autopsies. We have a dislike for respect for the, for, for the deceased and for, for funeral preparations that uh, the body be autopsied. You do, however, have to understand that if a person died an unnatural death, or it is not clear as to what is the cause of death, then in the South African context, that is unavoidable. It is unavoidable. And if you make certain tricks with doctors and it gets caught out that you did that, then you could easily face a charge of murder afterwards. And Allah knows best. So what we do is we try, I would call it our best, within the, the framework of the law, that the body doesn't go the way of autopsy. But if there's reason to doubt cause of death and the like, then we stand back and we say, well, we got no, what do you call this now? Authority beyond us. And uh, so the state needs to do what it needs to do. And Allah knows best. Right. It is also best to place the mayat on a platform lay, raised from the floor. The bed of the mayat, etc., etc. And not to put the body on the ground. If the body is on the ground, it has been noticed by the ulama that the body decomposes quicker. You understand? So especially in, 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 in a hot country like Saudi Arabia, you understand, even though we are hastening, you understand, the body can start decomposing and it can be unpleasant to others. And Allah knows best. It is also desirable to have the mayat face the qibla 
as is done with the muhtadar, the person about to die. But yet it is best to do so with him on his back with his head lifted and his face and soles of the feet facing the qibla. When a person is about to die, it is best that they lie on their right hand side. You understand? Then the left hand side, then on the back. So the preference there is, is, is one of three. Here you directly go to the third one. Right? Here the third preference is actually the first preference if the individual has passed away already. You should also remove the clothing of the deceased while keeping the aura covered. And here we need to remind you that since it will normally be a male washing a male and a female washing a female, that the area is the area between the navel and the knees. Excluding the navel, excluding the knees. There are some people here in Cape Town, and I've actually found, found what, what we call in Cape Town a tukamani, tukamandi, somebody that's washing the deceased, placing a piece of cotton wool on the one knee, then the other knee, then the navel, then just something in the middle now for the aura, and then they, they rub the whole sheet off, and then they say, as much as in That's not how it works. How it works is the area between the navel and the knees. It's not the navel and the knees, right? By the way, if you are alive, you are not allowed to cover only the area between the navel and the knees. You must cover half of your knee and half of your navel, navel minimum, so that if you move and your clothing moves that the area between the navel and the knee is still covered. So this is from one male to another male, from one woman to another woman, from a male to his maharim, from a woman to her maharim. The aura will be the area between the navel and the knees. If it's other people, the aura becomes bigger. And Allah knows best. So generally the law is that a man is washed by males, and a woman is washed by females, and there are exceptions. Such as, for example, it is lawful for a husband to wash his wife, and it is lawful for a wife to wash her husband. As for evidences, all of that, that will be mentioned when we actually do the ghusl. And Allah knows best. All right. So you will remove the, the clothing, you will keep the aura covered, so you can prepare the disease for washing, and you can protect the clothing from harm, like uh, leakage of fluids, etc., etc., onto the clothing, and Allah knows best. The body of the disease should then be covered with a light cover, like a sheet of linen, so as to not heat the body. Because if the body is heated, if you cover it with a blanket, it's going to heat the body, and it's going to accelerate decomposition. But if it's a light linen sheet, then it doesn't really provide heat, and the aura is covered, inshallah. I remind you that if you're going to make ghusl, then you can't use a light linen sheet only. Because the moment water contacts the light linen sheet, it's going to become see-through. So you're going to, you're going to have to add certain things at the time of washing. But that, that we discuss next week, inshallah. So this is based upon the narration of Aisha Rulana who says that when the Prophet passed away, they covered his entire body with a hibara garment. A hibara garment. And a hibara garment is a garment made of cotton or linen that is adorned with lines or markings. The Prophet made a special liking for a kamis, which is a type of a thobe that had lines running straight like this. Straight lines. So that was known as the hibara garment. And they covered the Prophet's entire body, including his face, with the Hibra garment. When Abu Bakr al-Anu came to visit the Prophet salam, he uncovered his face and then he kissed his forehead. Again indicating that the entire Prophet's body was covered, including his face. Eight, it is desirable that you hasten to settle the debts of the deceased, even before washing him. That you hasten to, 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 to settle his debts or her debts, 
and thereby relieve him of his financial or her financial obligations. The Prophet said the soul of a Muslim is suspended by his debts until it is paid. It doesn't mean that the soul is punished, but rather that the soul is still taken into account for the unpaid debt, and the soul is not allowed to get the full position of honor until the debt is settled. Some ulama said clearly, they say, in their opinion, what is meant by this hadith is, he's not allowed to enter Jannah yet until his debts are settled. So his soul is suspended between the heavens and the earth. But it doesn't mean he's being punished. It just means that he's not receiving the delight that he's supposed to be receiving. And Allah knows best. <coughs> it is however compulsory to settle all debts after funeral, funeral preparations. So funeral preparations is washing the body, shrouding the body, carrying the body to the graveyard, to the mosque for salah, and then to the graveyard, and then burying the body. After that, all debts must be settled. Actually, to be more exact, there are two types of debts. And we will discuss this later on tonight, inshallah. One debt that should be paid or guaranteed even before you do funeral expenses. And another type of debt that needs to be paid after funeral expenses. Either way, you are not allowed to carry out the will, the bequest, or the inheritance of the deceased until his debts are covered. Until his debts are covered. And Allah knows best. People who are present after the demise of the deceased should speak only good in the presence of the deceased. And preferably they must occupy themselves in the making of dua on behalf of the deceased. Again the story of Ummu Salama. When the Prophet entered the quarters of her husband Abu Salama, noticing that his eyes had a fixed there, he closed it, then he said the sight follows the soul as it is taken. Then one of the members of the family, when the Prophet said that, said that, started crying and wailing. So the Prophet said, stick to the making of good to us. As the angels say, Amin, may it be so, to what you say. So if you go on like a crazy person, then what are the angels saying Amin to? Amin to being crazy. You understand? So then the Prophet then made a sample dua for Abu Salama. He said, Allah li Abu Salama. Oh Allah forgive Abu Salama. Warfa' darajatahu. And raise his rank fil mahdiyin amongst the guided. Wakhlufu fi aqibihi fil ghabirin. And take care of his family left behind. Wakhfir lana walahu. And forgive us and for him, Ya Rabbil Alameen, O Lord of the worlds. Wafsah lahu fi qabri. And widen for him in his qabr. Wanawir lahu fihi. And place nur in his qabr for him. That's dua the Prophet himself made. It comes in Sahih Muslim hadith 920. What is interesting about this hadith is that in this hadith, the Prophet makes dua that his family should be taken care of. His family should be taken care of. Do you know who's the next husband of Umm Salama? Eh? The next husband of Umm Salama is the Prophet himself. Right? So it's something interesting. He made dua, oh Allah, look after them. Then actually, he eventually ended up looking after them, him himself. The Prophet of Allah, and Allah knows best. But at this moment in time, that wasn't known. It, it only became known afterwards. Imam Nawawi says, It is permitted for the relatives of the deceased and his friends to kiss his face, as it is established in a number of hadith. So, if you are a male, especially if you are close to the deceased, no problem. If you are a female and you are a mahram, that means you are a relative that is not allowed to marry. Then it is fine, you can greet him and you can kiss him. 
If you are not a relative at all and you are a member of the opposite gender, then ideally you mustn't come near the deceased. Ideally you mustn't come near the deceased. As for opening your front door and getting all the neighbors parade through there and come and watch your deceased as if he's around, no, that's not a good idea. You understand? That is not a good idea. The gathering of women also outside of the house, uh, it is not considered a good idea by ulama, and there's a hadith against that. Demanding that the deceased family make food for the visitors that come, ulama say outright, of all the schools of law, even the Shafi school, that there is a bidah, it is an innovation. That the family relatives of the deceased should not be burdened with the making of food. If somebody else wants to make food for the family and for the guests, then that is fine. But expecting the family members to make deceased, uh, the family members of the deceased to make food for guests, that is an outright bidan innovation. It's one of the worst kinds of innovations. They are mourning their debt. And now you're forcing them to work. You understand? That is not something that should happen. And Allah knows best. The reason I'm, I'm going out of my way to explain that to you is that there are cases where ulama differ. Some ulama say this is a bidah, and then other ulama say no, it's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. This year that we're speaking about is one of those cases where the ulama don't differ. They all agree that there is a very, very bad innovation. And Allah knows best. Signs of a good death. How would you know that somebody died a good death? Then here also I need you to understand that we Muslims are mutafail. Mutafailun. We are optimists. We are not pessimists. So ideally you will not take a bad sign and say that guy died in a bad way. Right? Normally you will go the way of taking a good omen. Say inshallah. Inshallah that individual is in, is in Jannah. So for some of the signs I'm going to give you the ahadith. For some of the signs I'm not going to give you the ahadith. Because there are too many signs and it would have led to, to too much work and also too much uh, PowerPoint slides. So I'm going to give you the, the hadith for about four or five of them, and the remainder, I just need you to know it comes in authentic hadith. So the final statement of the deceased is, La ilaha illallah, it goes to Jannah. We already did the hadith. If the deceased dies with sweat on his brow at the moment of passing, then that is a sign that he is a true believer, and that means he goes to Jannah. Ulama, the first to why he's got sweat on his brow. Some ulama say, that Allah causes a true Muslim to actually die a severer death. There's more strain in his death. So due to that strain, he sweats on his brow. So once again, what is the reason? The reason is so that he meets Allah sinless. So he needs Allah sinless. Some other ulama say, that when the Muslim is shown his Jannah and told, you're going to go to Jannah, then he's embarrassed that he is actually a being that has committed sins, but see how Allah still favors him. And they say due to that embarrassment, and then that sweat comes on his forehead, for whatever the reason, the fact of the matter is that it is a sign that that individual is a true believer. Also, if we die on the night of Jumu'ah, and the night of Jumu'ah, night in Islamic law comes before the day, so the night of Jumu'ah is actually Thursday night after Maghrib. So if we die on the night of Jumu'ah, on the day of Jumu'ah, the Prophet had said, no Muslim dies on the day of Jumu'ah, it's night, except that Allah will protect him from the trial of the grave. Since... The Qabr is the first level of the year after. If you're successful in the Qabr, then that is a sign you are successful in the year after. Uthman ibn Affan, the third Khalifa of Islam, used to sit by the grave and cry, and then tears would roll down his face and down his beard. 
Then one Sahabi came and asked him, Uthman, you fought in so many battles, are you afraid to die? Then he said, no, 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 I'm not afraid to die, it's not death that I fear, rather I fear this place, and the punishment in this place, because this place, if you're successful here, then you're successful in the next step, and if you fail here, then you fail in the next step, so I'm wondering what is my condition, and Allah knows best. Right. Also, if you die, there's a martyr on the battlefield. The Prophet had said, the martyr has six distinctive features by Allah. He is forgiven when his blood first spills. And is allowed to gaze upon his abode in Jannah while alive. He is protected from the punishment of the grave. He is protected from the great fright. Ulama defers to what is the great fright. Most ulama ever say the great fright is when the trumpet will be blown on the day of Qiyamah and everything will die. Right? So, it will be such a fright that even the dead people will get a fright. But the shaheed won't get a fright. He will be adorned with the jewelry of Iman on the day of Qiyamah. He will be married to a number of the Hur'ain. One hadith says 73. And he will be allowed to intercede for the 70 of his relatives. So 70 of his relatives he will be allowed to take out of Jahannam and take them to Jannah. And Allah knows best. So obviously he's successful. So I've given you the hadith on that. And for the next ones, just to generally mention, if you died while on a military expedition, then inshallah you died a good death. If you died due to plague, from the sense of what your condition with Allah, a good death. You died due to an affliction of the stomach, such as diarrhea. Maybe dehydration, I don't know, Allah knows best. He died due to drowning. He died due to building collapse. A woman who bled to death due to excessive nifas, lochia, postpartum, after childbirth, and she has bleeding. But it was excessive and it caused the death. She is a shaheed also, inshallah. She goes to Jannah. He died in a fire. He died due to pleurisy, which in Arabic is called Dhatul Janb, which is an inflammation of the lining of the lungs. Right? Uh, something like TB. And then number 13, he actually dies due to TB. Or he dies during a robbery, defending his wealth. Or he dies while defending himself. Or he dies while defending his deen. Or he dies while guarding the believers. Or he dies while occupied in an act of obedience. Like there are many people, alhamdulillah, by the grace of Allah, they died in the haram of Mecca, haram of Medina, while in sujood. You understand? So we all take it as a sign that this person, inshallah, is a forgiven person. Also, if he dies after admonishing a tyrant ruler. He knew this ruler was going to kill him, but he still told the ruler, this bang for Allah. But he did not forget. And then the guy killed him. You understand? So he probably knew he was going to die. You understand? So he's a shaheed also. Necessary funeral preparations. So this is what we're going to start doing next week, inshallah. <clears throat> right, so as soon as possible after the person has died, and it's confirmed that the person has died by an experienced doctor, then you need to proceed with funeral preparations. The performance of these funeral preparations is far kifaya, a communal obligation. What's the difference between a communal obligation and a personal obligation? Like the five times daily salah, that is a personal obligation. In a personal obligation, Allah is more concerned with the identity of the doer than the act. So when it comes to the making of maghrib, Allah wants me to make maghrib. In a communal obligation, Allah is more concerned with the act than the doer. So Allah is not really interested who does it, as long as somebody in the community does it. So let's call the communal obligation. If any one person in the community does it, then the rest of the community is absolved. If no one does it, the entire community are considered sinners. Right? And Allah knows best. So, 
washing the deceased, shrouding the deceased, carrying the deceased to the, to, to, to the mosque, making salah on the deceased, burying the deceased, all of that is fard kifaya. In Cape Town, I'll say, uh, your friends are kifayt. You don't get such a word in Arabic, kifayt. As a janaza, as your friends are janaza. So where does kifayt come from? It will appear it comes from this word, fard kifaya. I think back in the day, Somebody probably walked down the street and said, Janaza far kifaya, far kifaya, janaza far kifaya. And then somewhere along the line it just became kifait, kifait. And then we forgot it was even called janaza. You understand? Now we just say kifait. It's the same like the word riba. The word riba means backbiting, not fitna. Fitna means trial and tribulation. But probably the old people told the children, Ajiriba maga leaded na fitna. And then we forgot the riba and we started calling it fitna. You can't fitna other people. Fitna means a trial and a tribulation. And Allah knows best. You're making riba of them. Speaking ill of them behind their backs. So somehow the meaning of the one word moved on to the other word. And Allah knows best. Right, so in all of those cases it has to be done except for the shaheed. No ghusl is made of the shaheed. No salatul janaza is made of the shaheed. And the shaheed is coffined in the clothing that he wore while he was fighting. The idea is that he must appear on the day of Qiyamah in the presence of Allah with the blood still oozing out of his body. It is a sign of excellence for him and a sign of sacrifice for him, inshallah. According to the ahadith, the angels themselves wash him. The angels themselves read salah over him. So we don't do that. We leave him. Right, also all of these things apply to the Muslim and the Vimmi, the non-Muslim citizen of a Muslim state, except for Ghusl and Salah, as we don't give Ghusl to a non-Muslim, and we don't make Salah for him also. Salah is a form of Dua, and we don't make Dua for Kufar after they're dead, even if their name is Mandela. You understand? While alive, mashallah, good man, and we hope you become Muslim. When dead, you're dead. You were a good man, but you weren't a Muslim. Right? And we respect the fact that you were a good man, but the reality is you were a Muslim. And Allah knows best. In fact, if you look at his name, his name tells you everything. Man dolla. Man in Arabic means who? And dolla means the one who went astray. Man dolla. <laughs> Allah knows best. Right. Okay, maybe it's a bad joke. From the angle of being a non-Muslim, Madala was one of the best non-Muslims you can find. You understand? But you need to understand, he died a non-Muslim. And that's what you need to understand. So, there's no ghusl for him, there's no salah for him, there's no dua for him. We are not allowed to do those things for non-Muslims. Right, so funeral preparations in general, is you will ghusl the body, which means you will wash it. You will then coffin the body, which means you will wrap it in, in, in a shroud. We will discuss all of this, the minimum shrouding, how it is done, how the ghusl is made, etc. We will have a practical night also, in which one of you will have to be the dead person, or I'm going to have to hire somebody. <laughs> and then we're going to bring a totally new coffin set. And we're going to wash somebody, and we're going to bury somebody, and, 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 and coffin him and everything. And then hopefully Shaman will organize for us to have a look at, at the washing uh, center that they have next door. Because in this most they have actually one of the most professional centers here in Cape Town. So it would be nice to have a look at it and see what it looks like, inshallah. 
And then obviously the burial of the deceased. Right. So Salatul Janazah and the burial, we will discuss all of those things. Then rights attached to the estate of the deceased. Right? Rights attached to the estate of the deceased. When you die, the first thing that must be covered is debts that are connected to specific items that form part of the estate. Right? Estate is all the money and property that you leave behind. Now, if there's a debt attached to a specific item that is part of the estate, then that debt must be covered even before they can bury you. And when I say covered, I don't mean it needs to be paid. I mean it either needs to be paid or you need to put money aside for it. If that is the entire estate of the deceased, now you don't have money to bury him. So now you're going to have to find money to bury him. Where are you going to find money? We're going to explain that just now, inshallah. But the ideal is to bury the deceased and to have him washed with his own money. Right? But that money, you first will have to pay debts that is attached to specific items that is for part of the estate. So these debts of utmost importance should be catered for even prior to funeral preparations. They include items given in mortgage. So somebody gave me a mortgage, a car or a house or whatever, I have the ownership of it or the papers of it, then I passed away. So I need to make sure that the ownership of that must be returned to that individual and that the money must be given. If it's the other way around also, it's still the, 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 the same. I have mortgaged something of mine to somebody else. Since I have a debt to that person and that debt is connected to the thing that I mortgaged, that individual got greater right to that thing than anybody else. If I don't have money to pay myself free from that mortgage, it means he has the right to take that thing and sell it and get his money and then only the remainder is given to me. Likewise, if I, if I bought a thing by way of lay-by, so what's a lay-by? You buy it, but it stays by the seller. So there's still an amount left, isn't it? So since that amount is left, that item isn't mine yet. So that, amount must, that man must still be given his amount left. Or that item cannot form part of the estate. The item perhaps must be sold. He takes his amount. The remainder can perhaps be given to me. Uh, meaning can form part of my estate as the deceased. Likewise with any unpaid zakah. Unpaid zakah. Zakah is owed to the poor. And it's part and parcel of the money. So the zakah must first be given. Then you can use money for funeral expenses. Right, so that's number one. Number two, we now arrange for funeral expenses. Right? So you are washed, you are shrouded, you are conveyed to the mosque, Salatul Janazah is performed on you, you are transported to the graveyard, you are buried. At each movement, there's a cost. The person that washes you took a money, he charges a fee. Right? The coffin, there's a fee. Uh, to take you to the mosque, there's a fee. The imam moet ook nog die geslaafd worden. Daar is een fee. You understand? Uh, je moet betalen voor die gat. Daar is een fee. Never mind you paid for the gat. The guys who dig, they still waiting for the slavat also. <laughs> That's separate. You understand? They're going to get wages from the, from, the, from, the, from, the, from the makbara. And you actually paid money for them already. But they still expect a slavat on top of that. You understand? And Allah knows. Best. So there's a whole lot of money that needs to go. That money must come from the deceased's own money. Unless somebody wants to give charity. 
You understand? But the lowest message must come from the deceased own money. So the money for all of the above is to be taken from the estate of the deceased with the exceptions of minor children and wives. If it's a minor child, a child that is not mukallaf yet, and it's a wife. In regards to the children, their father must pay. In regards to the wife, her husband must pay. And this applies to the degree that even if he talaqta, and she's in an idda, that is a raji idda, revocable idda. Only one talaq was given or two talaqs was given. And then she dies. He will still pay for her janazah. He will still pay for her janazah. Because technically she's still in the ruling of a wife. While she's in idda. Right? So males are responsible for their own estates. And they're responsible for the estates of minor children of theirs. And wives. Including wives that are in idda. Right? So that's that. Should the deceased be poor, if the estate doesn't have sufficient funds to cover its funeral expenses, the responsibility for the payment of funeral expenses falls on those who would have been responsible for his maintenance had he been alive. So he's a khurat man, but he's an hotel, and his children are big also, and they're earning money, so that means his children are responsible for him, and when I say children, I mean male children. A woman is almost never financially responsible for anybody. It almost never happens in fiqh. That a woman is financially responsible for anybody. The moment it comes to for looking for money, we go look for a male. That is the law in Islam, and Allah knows best. So we're going to look for his male children. He doesn't have male children, we're going to look for his father's brothers. Don't have them, the father's brother's children. Don't have them, uncles. Don't have them, uncle's children. Don't have them. Then we go to the public treasury, the Baitul Mal. No Baitul Mal. Then anybody in this town that got money more than his own need, not his own want, his own need, then he must pay. Because it is fault, kifaya, and Allah knows best. Right. So if they don't exist, it falls to the public treasury, and the absence of responsibility devolves on the rich members of the Muslim society who have money in excess of their own basic needs. Their own basic needs. All other debts is now category three. These debts include those owed to humans and that owed to Allah. Such as nudur, vows, and kafarat, expiations. A vow is when you take an oath that you will do something. I take an oath that I will go on hajj. I take an oath that I will fast. I take an oath. I vow that I will go on itikaf. Right? So if it requires finance to do that, you will have to come up with that finance. In a kafara, you committed a sin. And now to absolve you from that sin, there's an act that you have to do, there's an expense that you must pay as a kafara, like you must feed 30 people, for example, or you must feed so forth and so forth. So all of that are kafara expiations. Yeah, you need to remember that debts out to Allah have precedence in the sequence of fulfillment. So you must first pay the debts to Allah, then you pay the debts to humans. You see, if you pay the debts of humans first, and then the debts of Allah, so Allah is not going to ask for it in this dunya. You understand? And Allah has no representative in this dunya that knows what is owed to Allah. So it might just happen that you don't pay it. But if you first pay Allah, and then you owe that human, then that human is going to ask, So he's still going to get paid. Even though he's second in line, he still gets paid. Right. So the message of Allah said, Allah has greater right to fulfillment. Now, First category debts, paid. Funeral, done. 
Second category, debt paid. First thing to do, we now look at your will. That third of the estate, who did you bequeath it to? You made wasiya to who? We now give that. So Ali ibn Abi Talib narrates in the message of Allah said, the Prophet decreed that debts be paid before any bequest. While you read in the Quran the mention of the bequest prior to the debt. If things in the Quran come first, then normally that is an indication of tartib sequence. That you have to follow that sequence. It is however not a definite sequence. In this case, though the one is mentioned before, the Prophet actually judged that the other be paid first. So though wasiya is mentioned before debt, that you bequest the third is mentioned before debt, the Prophet actually commanded that debt be paid before the wasiya. So that is the proper way that it should be done. Now eventually we come down to inheritance. Now we go look for your heirs. Right? Who are your heirs? So can I use as an example, what is uncle's name? Nawaz? Uh, does uncle have a wife? Uh, father and mother? Son and daughter? Two sons, one daughter. Right? So wives get an eighth because they are children. If there were no children, wife would have got an eighth? Quarter. Mother and father both get a sixth because they are children. Had there been no children, mother would have gotten a third, father would have gotten the remainder. So it's two sixths, one eighth. What remains after you do, 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 do give the one eighth and the two sixths to the parents will be shared amongst the children, double and single. So for every male, will get two shares that every female gets. So if you work that masala out, then the masala will be out of 24. So your estate is supposed to be divided into 24 shares. Your wife gets an eighth. Eight times three gives me 24. So she gets three out of 24 shares. Your father gets a six. Six times four produces that. So that's another four. Your mother gets the same. That's another four. Four plus four plus three gives me 11. 24 minus 11 gives me 13. So the 13, that amount, must be divided between your sons and your daughters. Whatever a daughter gets, a son must get double that. You said you had two sons and one daughter. So two for the one son, two for the other son, one for the daughter. So that's two plus two plus one is five. I can't divide the number 13 in five. So now I must take that five and I must times it with my original number, which was 24. Then I get a new number, which is 120. Then I times that five by the three, and the wife now gets 15 out of 120. And I must take that five and times it by the four for the mother. So she gets 20 and the father gets 20. Then five is the share of every daughter. And double that is the share of every son. And Allah knows best. Did I work that out right? right? The only way to know for sure if you see the numbers in front of us. But I'm, I'm just trying to remember as much as I can. And Allah knows best. But we'll do that again. Don't worry. That's coming right at the end. I'll teach you how to do inheritance and all of that. But I, I'm just trying to give you an idea. So in principle... If you pass away at this moment in time, may Allah protect you from that. May, you keep, may Allah keep you with as many years doing good deeds, inshallah. But if you, if you pass away or whenever you pass away and all your current heirs still remain, your father will get a six, your mother will get a six, your wife will get an eighth. 
Your sons and daughters will inherit your entire estate at the rate of double single. Now comes the golden question. Why do boys inherit more than girls? Didn't I just say before that men are responsible? So since their financial responsibility lies with the men, when it comes time to paying, they get more also. And Allah knows best. And normally when we explain this, we explain it like this. If I give the, the daughter a thousand rand, it means I must give the son a two thousand rand. Right? So I pass away, I give my daughter a thousand rand, I give my son a two thousand rand. My son that gets married, his wife wants a dowry of a thousand rand, he gives it to her. How much he got left? A thousand rand. And he must continue to look after himself and his wife and any children that comes afterwards of that thousand rand. My daughter gets married, she charges a dowry of a thousand rand. How much she got now? 2,000 rand, and she's never going to need to spend it upon anybody for the rest of her life. <laughs> huh? Yes, but it's a gift. It's a gift. It's not, it's not, it's not an obligation. This is, this is the point that I'm, I'm trying to, to, to state here. So the one thing you will notice about Islamic inheritance is in every case where the related male is financially responsible, he inherits more. And in every case where the related male carries no financial responsibility, then he and the female in question inherits the same. Like for example, the Akhli Ummin and the Ukhtli Ummin, the brother from the mother's side and the sister from the mother's side, since they don't belong to your tribe, they are not financially responsible for you. So therefore both of them inherit the same when they do inherit, and that is one-six. One-six for the male, one-six for the female. There's no difference in their shares because that particular male is never financially responsible for anybody of this tribe. And if you know what tribe means, then the easy way to, ask, to, to know that is to ask yourself whether your surname and their surname is the same. Yes. So, one of the reasons why your sons cannot be your walis, why they can't marry you off, is because they don't belong to your tribe. What's your surname and what's your son's surname? Your maiden surname is what? And your son's surname is what? He doesn't belong to your tribe. He belongs to your husband's tribe. So his honor is not affected. If things go wrong with you, and Allah knows, best. But your brother is your tribal member, so he can be your wali, and your uncle, and etc., etc. And Allah knows, best. Right, I only have five minutes left. I just want to quickly do some related government regulations. If an individual dies at home, then you can't just immediately book the cover and, and wash the individual and take him to get buried. There's a procedure here. So number one, you're going to have to take the dead person to the hospital to see a medical practitioner. You are not allowed to transport dead people on your own. So you're going to have to phone the police and they must send the police officer. Frequently they require death registrar to go with the body as well. So you, one member of the family, known as the informant, you will go with to the hospital with your ID and the ID of the deceased with the policeman, sometimes the death registrar and the dead person to the hospital. Right? So we already said you, the informant, you must come with your ID and the ID of the deceased. When at the hospital, the medical practitioner will now check out the dead person and determine what is the cause of death and that they are actually dead. And they will fill in the related form, which is BI 1663. Right? That's called the death notice. Right? 
Besides stating the cause of death, the doctor will then also have to provide his or her details on that form. Who are they? Alright? Then the details of the informant must be put in that form. As long as the, de- uh, the details of the deceased, same form, BI 1633. Right? The death registrar must then ensure that all these details are correct. And he will then issue a death report. That's BI 1680. And he will then provide the undertakers with a burial order which is BI-14. That burial order, BI-14, you take to the makbara and then you order a kabar. Like at Mowbray Kabar, you go to the actual makbara. There's people that live there in the graveyard. You give them the form and you pay them the amount and then they will ask you when do you need the hole and you will tell them when you need it and when you come there, that time you'll find that they are there with your hole. Right? <laughs> Allah knows best. But nobody's going to dig a hole if you don't come with this form BI-14. They're not allowed to make holes in graveyards without a burial order. It's illegal. You understand? It's illegal. And Allah knows best. So the burial order will then be given to the graveyard officers who will then dig a grave and bury the deceased at the time provided by the imam who's in charge of the Zanaza. Right? That's how it normally works. Right? Homophobic affairs must then be informed via its officers at its offices, and they will then issue a death certificate. Then the death certificate will be used to execute the will of the deceased, and his estate can then be wound up. Normally the Department of Home Affairs, DHA, also requires the death notice, that the death registrar grave you, and it requires the death report, which is the medical certificate, before they will issue you with a death certificate. After you have a death certificate, then you can finish off the estate and all of that. Those are the legal requirements of all of these things in South Africa. As a normal individual, you don't need to know it, but your imam better knows it. You understand? Otherwise, things are not going to go the way it's supposed to go. And Allah knows best. And a sample of a form is like that. In the past, you could download it from the Department of Home Affairs' website, but due to corruption and fraud, they don't allow you to download it anymore. Welcome to the new South Africa. Right, we end there, inshallah. Next week we are going to be doing the washing of the deceased and related issues, inshallah.